Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is producer Mark Plotty. But first of all, let's look at one minute on the internet in 2020. It's really pretty amazing what goes on. For instance, there are 500 hours of video uploaded by users every single minute. When it comes to Instagram, there are 347,222 stories every 60 seconds. Snapchat has 52,083 users connected. In Snapchat, there's 41.7 million messages shared every minute. For Spotify, there are 28 new tracks added to the library every minute. Twitter has 319 new users gained every minute. Zoom has 208,333 participants in meetings every minute. Amazon ships 6,659 packages every minute. TikTok, which is really hot right now, 2,704 app installations every minute. And Netflix, this is the one that really blows my mind. There are 404,444 hours of video streamed by users every single minute. So we're using the internet more and more. If we would have looked at this last year or two years ago, five years ago, these figures would have been beyond what we could have comprehended then. But now it's pretty average. Can't wait to see what it's going to be like next year. If you have any questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Here's something that I thought was really, really interesting. When we think of acoustic treatment, we usually think of fiberglass, which has been the old standby for 40 years, 50 years, especially compressed Fiberglass, Owens Corning 703, 705 is what's been used. The last number of years, there's been a number of different things that have started to replace it. One of the materials is rock wool, of course, which is spun rock. Another one is recycled blue jeans. And now we find that there's another product that helps the environment a whole lot by recycling, and that's recycled plastics, especially soda bottles. A company called Vicoustics out of Portugal makes sustainable VicPet wool from recycled plastic bottles. Just in the last two years, they've used 250 tons of plastic waste, and that is the equivalent of 22,500,000 milliliter bottles. That's just in two years. Now, what they do is they make some very interesting acoustic materials, not traditional acoustic panels, but acoustic materials. For instance, they have what looks to be a wooden wall paneling, has pretty good mid-range absorption qualities, as well as an acoustic wallpaper that they make. And this is mostly a combination of their VicPet wool, which is the recycled plastic bottles, along with some melamine resin, which is completely organic, and MDF. The cool thing about what they do is everything is recyclable. 
So if at some point in time you decide you don't like what you have, you can just recycle it again if you don't want to reuse it. So this is a very cool use, kind of a new use for plastic. And again, it's one of those things where we have so much plastic, anything that we can recycle for good use, especially when it comes to acoustics, is really welcome. My guest this week is Mark Plotty, who's worked with a wide range of major artists, including Prince, David Bowie, Janet Jackson, Talking Heads, Fleetwood Mac, The Bee Gees, The Cure, and many others. Mark was initiated into the New York music scene, working under the tutelage of dance music legend Arthur Baker in the late 80s. In 1991, he began a 10-year association with minimalist composer Philip Glass at his New York City recording complex, The Looking Glass. There he produced, engineered, mixed, and performed on albums by Bowie, The Cure, Duncan Sheik, Dave Navarro, as well as Philip Glass himself. In 1996, Mark co-produced Bowie's Earthling album, which marked the beginning of a period where he produced and recorded, mixed and performed on most of Bowie's musical output until about 2003, even serving a three-year stint as David's musical director on tour. Since then, he's been working with a number of artists in Paris, as well as becoming involved in musical theater. During the interview, we talked about working with Prince and Bowie, music for theater, following up on opportunities, and much more. I spoke with Mark from his studio in New York City. So let's go from the beginning. You started music very early, and what happened? Well, I started about 10 years old. I got interested in playing drums, and that kind of led to playing bass at guitar in high school because of my music teacher, who happened to be a cousin of Duke Ellington. And his whole sensibility really had a lot to do with where my ship kind of sailed to, because I was gigging with him as a teenager, like in little clubs and things. We went to Berkeley and um, jazz festival. And so that really kind of imprinted me in a certain direction as far as, you know, definitely performance wise and all that. Um, well, I was still thinking when I quote unquote grew up, I would, you know, get a straight job and all the rest of that. I thought it was all kind of a lark. And then later on in high school, I saw um, a recording session of a friend of mine. His band had been, uh, he was a cover band, money, and they'd gone to a 16 track studio to make their own demo. And I went along just to hang out and uh, get the technology kind of hit me over the head. It was like, wow, there was something just amazing about how these things got put together, like, oh, there are the drums and tracks and, and all kind of comes together and takes a great degree of know-how technically and artistically to do that properly. So that really stuck with me so much so that when I got to college and I declared myself a business major and that lasted about three days. And then I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> Why would I do that? So then I realized my school, I kind of hedged my bets and I went to Indiana University where they had a killer music school. And I thought, you know, I can always kind of dabble in that. And they happen to have an audio program uh, with a 16 track studio. So I immediately like plunged into that. And I, when I say plunge, that really, you know, that really became my entire, sort of my entire life at that point. I really did as much as I could. I did live sound. I played out as much as I could. I did as many sessions in this little studio as we were able to do. Um, even as <laughs> Me and a friend of mine used to sneak in overnight and do sessions. We were just like that kind of committed to it, crazy, and you know, 
we were bringing local bands, we would record our own stuff. We were just, uh, we were just really bitten with that whole bug. After college, I had to do an internship uh, to, to, uh, to, com- to complete my degree. And so I went to Dallas and I worked on the remote truck of a company called Omega Audio, owned by Paul Christensen. He also had a room with an Amec 2500 in it, in a studio that kind of he shared his Atari MTR 90s with. And part of my deal as an intern, aside from schlepping these MTR 90s back from you know, the truck and to the studio, the truck which had a fabulous, it's the old record plant API, I believe he had in there. I mean, this was all, <laughs> this is all candy store stuff to an audio kid. It's like, wow, these things really exist and they're out there. The other part of my deal was like, if I did my Aaron Stern day and, and did the things on the truck and the remote jobs that I could then use the studio downtime for whatever I would want to do. I could mix tapes they had in their library. I could bring in people to record. And uh, being young and energetic and not needing that much sleep, I did just that. I would often, I don't know, I had like a prince kind of metabolism at that point. I just was kind of full on immersed in it because I was in Dallas, Texas. I didn't really know anybody and I didn't want to sit down route. So it was just kind of 24 seven music and audio. Um, After that, when I did finish my internship, which was also tricky because by that time I had begun to set up roots because you can't help but do that and make friends. And I was getting work and I said, you know, either I nip this now or I'm going to stay here. At that point in the audio world, in the music industry world, I suppose there were three places one could really go if you wanted to start doing this. And uh, those were in alphabetical order, Los Angeles, Sorry, London, Los Angeles, and New York City. London had obvious immigration issues, so that wasn't quite so easy. I did go to LA uh, for a few days to check it out, but I don't know, there was just the electricity of the city didn't, didn't get me. It was like, it felt like Dallas and there was too much waiting in traffic and all the rest of us. I, like, I don't know if I really want to live here. Um, I thought, okay, I'll try New York because I actually was from the suburbs of New York and so I had a very good idea of what it was like. And sure enough, I came here in late 1986 and I kind of never left, uh, which leads us to even today where um, in the midst of a pandemic, um, I'm really not, still not going anywhere. I mean, I didn't leave in 9-11. I didn't leave in blackout. I didn't leave in Hurricane Sandy. And I don't know, not leaving now. And there's that's just kind of a, a uh, funny little core New York City mentality that really, I guess, sticks with you because it's there's just nowhere like here. And that struck me very quickly when I got here. It's like, wow, this town is there's there's so much energy here. This is late 86. And this was kind of especially music industry wise. Things were really, really humming along at that point in this town. There were just studios and studios and studios of all sort of levels. Like you had your hit factory and your power station and these the really big places, those big rooms that, you know, you read about on the you know, liner notes and all that. And, you know, you kind of dream about what oh, could work there. Uh, and then you had lots of smaller places, 24 track places that just would do overdubbing. They would do jingles and there were just tons of them. So 
getting a job didn't seem to be that daunting. Although, of course, I started with those fabulous places I read about in the line of notes <laughs> and got rejected by most of them because even though I had credits and I'd been doing lots of work, it was sort of, well, they didn't really have any room for anybody. And if they did, I would spend a year in gopher and coffee. I would you know, vacuum the console. I would do all these things, you know being what they call, I guess, a general assistant or a gopher. And I don't know, I've been recording stuff on a remote truck. I was not really feeling it to go, to go back to making coffee. So I kept looking. And as, you know, luck and timing have it, being two critical components of, I guess, anything, I knocked on the door of one shakedown sound owned and operated by producer Arthur Baker. And... They just happened to need somebody to be an assistant. And I wouldn't say I lied. I kind of said, oh, I can do that. Because he did a lot of sequencing and MIDI things, and which I didn't know all that much about. But I thought, you know, staying up late with manuals and tinkering and stuff, I'll kind of cop that. I'll get it. So I said, sure, you know. And I wouldn't be operating that stuff full on anyway at the beginning. I said, you know, I could do it. I hadn't really worked on an SSL yet. So I went for that and they hired me and immediately I began assisting on like uh, on remix sessions, which would sometimes go 24 hours. Uh, basically they come in, do a bunch of overdubs, mix a bunch of passes all in one shot. And that was quite an education just to sort of be in that part of the process and be part of it. Um, especially after they learned that I was musical and I could make some, uh, I could fix some problems along the line of like trying to work in samples that weren't in the right key and things like that. And they'd say, what, it doesn't sound right. What's wrong? Well, that's in B flat and the track's in like C. And they're like, oh, whoa, well, can you fix that? And, yeah, sure. And so having that sort of thing, uh, you know, musical vocabulary and uh, an ability to fix things like that definitely was a plus. Uh, in a world like that, because there were a lot of people like DJs and things, and they didn't have musical training. I mean, they they knew their records and they knew their sounds and things like that. But having a musical background, like a, a, a trained background, they just didn't have that. So I was really able to to complement their skills and, you know, also learn from them, you know, the way they were manipulating sounds and editing and all these kinds of things and just the way you place a bass drum in a mix and, and, and I would watch some of these, you know, I would assist some really great guys like Tom Lord Algae, there was somebody else that was coming a lot, um, Bob Rosa, and, and just watch them and, and see how they did it and take lots of mental notes and uh, see how they sampled things. And, and this was in the days of like the AMS sampler and, you know, the Akai sampler had just come out and we had, you know, we had, a, we had one pretty quick. So we were right at the front leading edge of that and seeing how that changed the, the construction of music very quickly, how that changed it. From then, uh, luck and timing again. One of the DJs I was working with, Junior Vasquez, had been doing lots of uh, remixes. I've been 
actually, at that point, I was mixing stuff. So I was mixing for him and doing his overdubs and all that. We've done a healthy number of projects. And then he got a call from Paisley Park. And they wanted him to come and mix some things at Paisley Park with Prince. So he, of course, he called me and said, would you like to get on a plane and go to Minnesota? Uh, which I had to think about for, oh, maybe five nanoseconds or so. And oh, two days later, I'm in Chanhassen, Minnesota, in the middle of winter 1990. And, and that was a life-changing event. After that, everything, everything changed after that. After I could have a name like Prince and Mixer together on my discography, um, Everything pretty much changed. Just to show you how small a world it is, I knew Paul Christensen, and I know the AMEC 2500 very well. I was a sales manager for AMEC for a year or so, so I know those consoles inside and out and how good they were and underrated. So, again, small world. Small world. That had the EQ. I remember one time, it was so musical. Time I had a guitar track and I managed to make a wawa with those EQs, right enough cues, keeping it and all that. I, I bounced into another track once I got the performance right, which I felt really convincing. And it didn't sound crazy, it sounded really proper. I was amazed with that. I still remember that. Was, um, and I've tried it a couple of times, and it never works out quite well. Let's go back to Arthur Baker for a second. You were actually right kind of in the middle of when both dance music and hip-hop really got big. And you came from a rock background, as I understand it. So that's a a clash of cultures. So how did you make that work? I really didn't want it to be that much different. I mean, you've got like rhythm, melody, and it all has to work together. And even though I wasn't steeped in it stylistically, I could still, you know, put the elements together. I mean, it might not have been my specialty or my favorite kind of music, but it became a real point of pride that I could, I could make these kind of records because I wasn't coming from that world at all. And for me, it was a great challenge, and I took away so much from that that I still use today. So it seemed to me like an opportunity that I should take. So from there, you went to Philip Glass, right, or very soon after, which... You're talking about polar opposites. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had, after Prince, I had gone to Europe for a while. I got a European manager and I started producing records in Europe just to kind of cut my teeth out of the eyes of the American industry so that I would get my act together, which was very cool. But when I would come to New York, I would be mixing things at some places. And one day I was with an artist on Columbia and they wanted to mix at this studio I had never heard of called The Looking Glass. And I said, wow, where is that? And it was on Broadway in White House, Soho. And they said, well, it's good to have to sell room, lots of stuff. And we go, okay, sure, I'll try that. And once I get there, I find out that the glass means Philip Glass. And this is the studio Philip has set up for himself to record his own music. Because at that point, he was doing so much that he could justify an in-house studio. And he started to punch as a soundtrack and things. This is like 1991. 
And I love this place so much because they had a window, which nobody had a window. View of the Manhattan Bridge. The vibe was spectacular. It was just so kind of down home and friendly. And I started to bring other work there just because I liked it so much. Around this time, I had my first child. And up till then, I had had like really pre-production stuff in my apartment. But after that, I realized I really couldn't do that in the apartment. I just, you know, I can't devote like a chunk of this room to like, you know, racks of gear. So I was like, I have to find some place to work, um, find a room of my own. So I thought, well, I should ask those guys at the class and see if they've got any space. Maybe I could have a little room down there, a little pre-production room. I said, I talked to them and said, you know, I'm working here a lot. I could have my ear in a room. And then when I'm ready, I could read all my stuff down the hallway and, and, you know, do my work in the big room. And they're like, yeah, that's a great idea. So I had a room there for going on seven years, I think. And that's exactly what I would do. Is I would you know, work on my pre-production in my room, wheel all my stuff down to the studio and, you know, do my actual recording there. And that went on for a long time. And I worked with Philip on a couple of things. Philip had his own um, sort of, I guess, staff or his own people that would do his music because they knew him for years, knew his method. Uh, but occasionally he would need some you know, additional person. And I it's the soundtrack with him that I can't remember where it was. Uh, I did something else with him. It was a one-off song with Superman Vega we did. So I would do little one-off things with him occasionally. Uh, mostly they considered me like the in-house kind of rock guy, which coming from, again, coming from, you know, then coming from dance music to that, it was, I was just didn't have any kind of, I don't know how it's uh, not that I didn't have any, but I had kind of these multiple things happening, which for me was great. Um, not so great for the industry because they didn't have any idea of like who I was, like, what do you, what do, you do? So well, I do this and I do this and I we can't really figure out what to do with you because you're like all over the shop. Well, I guess. And so that kind of was a little bone of contention in the American music industry. The Europeans weren't like that. The Europeans were just like, bring it on, you know, Prince, go oh, bring it on, do what you want. Uh, not America so much, but so my relationship at Looking Glass went on a very long time, and that's where I met Mr. Bowie as well, uh, and loads of other people who come through there. So that was a really long and, and nice period. Well, let's go to uh, David Bowie then because you had a long relationship with him. I don't know if you know, I co-wrote a book with Ken Scott, his autobiography, where he talked a lot about working with David in the beginning on Ziggy Stardust and changes and whatever. It was very interesting about the way David worked in that he worked very quickly. And I get the impression he worked like that with you as well. Absolutely. The, the first record I did with him was Earthling. And... Earthling is a very complicated sequence, sample record, drums with ropes, all kinds of stuff. And the recording of that took, I don't know, six weeks maximum for a record like that. And that's, it only took that long because they were touring at the time. We would work a few days a week and then they'd go off and do shows. And then I would do like, you know, editing and I'd, do my kind of cleanup work and add my bits in it and 
they hadn't been on tour. I'm sure you would have cracked that record in three weeks or so, but he was fast. And you better have your vocal mic ready because, like, you're going to go in and sing, and that's going to be it. <laughs> I mean, just no, like, thinking I'll do a take today and think about it. I'll do three takes and we can't. It's like, no, that's it. It's like, you know, first take or whatever. If he forgets a word, you back up and punch him in, like, very old school. But there was no, like, you know, I need, I need a vocal slip. <laughs> there was none of that at all. It was kind of very straight up old school. And that was very refreshing. Yeah, that's what Ken said as well, where I think his quote was, he never did a second take except for one song. And the reason why he did two takes in a particular song was because it was a whisper in the beginning, and it was uh, kind of like a shout at the end. It was two different frames of mind, so we got a chance to uh, reset his preamp and compressor in, in the meantime. But he said that was the only time he could remember doing a second take. Ha, 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 I believe it. It helps that the man could really, really think. That's true, too. One time, on that record, there was a song where there was no second verse yet. He had kind of la la his way through it because he only had lyrics for one, for the first verse. And we went through the whole record with it like that. We just never got around to putting that vocal in until I mixed the record at right track. And I'm getting to that song. And I said, hey, you know what? We never put a vocal in that second verse. And it's like, oh, it has no lyrics. Oh. So he goes back to the couch, starts to dribble away. I don't know, five, ten minutes later, like, okay. Goes in, one take, finished. And it wasn't just like some off-the-cuff, nothing lyrics. It was like actually pretty deep and very cool. And that was, that was impressive. That was just a very typical Dave experience. Now, you went one step further with David and that you got a chance to play with him. And actually, you were his MD for a while. It's one thing being in the studio with somebody. It's another thing being on the road with somebody. How do you compare that? I found it to be very different. When I was working with him in the studio, he felt more like just a, a regular client, like, you know, that I would bounce off of and, and you know, because I'm there because we want, you know, my ears and my opinion, and I would offer that. And just like he's just another artist. I mean, I don't mean that in like a small way, but just sort of, you know, we're, we're kind of a little on, you know, the playing field feels very different. But then when I began to play with him, and I remember the first gig I did with him was this VH1 Storyteller show, which I did because I knew they needed a second guitar player for that, because there was going to be a lot of acoustic guitar stuff, and they were going to need somebody to do that. And so by then, I'd done two records with them, so I was kind of in the family, so to speak, and I just said, hey, well, all right, can I do one show? <laughs> just one show? And they're like, yeah, we know you, and you know it. So it was just made sense. You know, I just kind of stepped into it, and a lot of times with David, like you would do something and then you just would, you'd kind of stay in that place. So once I got in the band and figured out like, you know, because he said to me, you can be MD because it's like being a producer, but you're on the bus. And you can fire obviously, in the middle So I was like, oh, and that made sense to me. And it was actually a pretty, pretty decent transition. But that first gig, and I'm back there in the band, and 
he's up there singing. And then after two or three years of working with him, I go, oh, man, it's David Bowie. <laughs> and it hit me in a completely different way to see him doing that with this audience and with all of my kind of fan memories and all that. So that was a very different dynamic yeah i see how that would happen at some point after that you began to work a lot in paris right i did i had done a few things there in the 90s uh, but in 2004 i had um i had gotten off the road i um, and i wasn't uh, i was kind of i wouldn't say aimless at that point but i was trying to figure out what i was going to do next because I didn't really want to do the touring thing. That just, it was a little, I guess, late for me in life to commit to being a road dog, I think. And I was missing making records. And, but I was also in this place where and what tends to happen is you can get typecast into making a certain kind of, of recording. Um, at first, it happened with dance records where, you know, no one would hire me to do guitar records because, well, you're a dance guy. And then after that, I became, after Earthling, I became an electronic guy. And that was cool for a minute, except that I didn't want to remake that record over and over and over again. That wasn't really for me. I was after, it's funny because after I did Earthling, I was ready to like say, okay, I just want to play acoustic guitar and mount. <laughs> That's what I want to do now because now I've taken my whole dance music and rock music thing to combine those things. I've taken that to a beat for myself and I've done it and done it with amazing artists. And I don't know what's going to compare to that. What can I, and am I just going to do this over and over now? Is that, that's what they want me to do. It seems like everybody would like me to kind of take the, that magic and, put it into their thing, but it's like, well, I don't know. That was, Ursula was a very one-off kind of love affair with this aesthetic. And after that, I was like, well, then it becomes a job. And I've been really wary of ever having a job. So I'm like, what can I do now? What happens now? So after that, I get a call from a very good friend of mine in Paris. His name was Mark Dunham. He, I had met him years and years ago when I was in Europe in my little production phase. He worked at Virgin Publishing, and I met him then, and we kept up a friendship. And uh, He hired me to do a record around 1994 for Barclay label in France, and that went really well. But in the 2000, late 2004, he said, well, I have this band of mine, that was his biggest band, he had a label by then, and they were the biggest band of his label called Wee's Attack. And he said... This band, now, would you like to work with them? They want to come to New York and, and do a record like somewhere in New York. And I thought, well, yeah, sure. I don't know what French rock is like or whatever, but sure, sure not. It's an opportunity. It's, you know. So I said, and I've been working a lot at Electric Lady, and I, and I said, well, how about if we work at Electric Lady? Which, of course, they jumped at that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, a legendary Electric Lady. So... Uh, we went and recorded a record there. I went and mixed it in Paris. The record came out, did very well. And then I started to get calls, bands and artists and friends, because this record had really done well. And that led to 
a wave of, of, of at least 10 years of longer of, of music that would come from France and Belgium, and sometimes England, sometimes Germany, but mostly from mostly out of France. And I got to work with some amazing, iconic people who I actually still work with. I worked with one on a DVD, live DVD mix, uh, just finished up two weeks ago. So that kind of still continues, and I still have relationships with a lot of these people that are still out in the business there. So it just was one of those walking, timing things. I happened to be free, they had this idea, and I went for it, and that was it. And you opened the door. And speaking of going for it, then you get into theater, right? <laughs> yes. Again, I mean, through a, I'm a French artist, I met a singer-actor person over there who had done some co-writing with this artist. He was taken with thing, and he, uh, he asked me, well, into writing some songs for a musical. You know, how would you like to do that? And I didn't really know anything about that. Wow, right? You know, but I said, sure, of course. I've never done that, but I'm going to do it now. <laughs> so that led to some really amazing experiences. I remember we went to this house way out in the middle of Brittany in France. And we were there two weeks with a laptop and the interface and small mini keyboard and a Stratocaster. And I don't know like 15 or 20 pieces and drank really good wine and a really nice sunset and ate great just a fabulous experience you find that it was a director that he knew that really loved what we were doing and he set it to a piece to it so that was for me another whole experience that I never counted on or looked for but it knocked on the door and I just went what is the best piece of business advice that either you've learned along the way or someone imparted to you? Hmm. I think, I think what I've been saying all along is to take these opportunities. Even if you don't think it's your specialty, even if it's not what you want at that moment, but you're going to get something out of it. You're always going to get something. Even if it turns out horribly, you're going to get something out of it. And, you know, I have stories about these doors that have opened and I've taken them, and it's been great. And I've had a couple of them that haven't worked out. But that's just, you know, failure is really important. You really have to know, like, okay, that didn't work. Why didn't it work? That's, I think, almost as critical as things working out because then you go oh okay what can i fix what can i do that that doesn't happen how can i ensure that that doesn't happen and one thing that i did learn from that was i did try to do things that i did not want to do that i thought i'm not suited for that but i did them for business reasons and i think i felt back <laughs> because I violated my own kind of work ethic and ethos and all that. And I think that's another thing you have to combine with these opportunities to really, at least for myself, like, to do things you know you can add to that, that's going to work with your own personality. Again, maybe not what you want to do at that minute, 
but say, oh, well, like I could do a musical, but I like music. I like, you know, I like kind of the direction they want to take. Then said, okay, if they wanted to make like a hip hop musical, I would be like, I don't know if that's really for me. I don't know if I have enough of the love or the expertise to do that. I mean, I could mix stuff like that. And I could like get in my head in that space. But I don't think I could create it. So I would have to like have a caveat with that. So, well, I can work on more of the technical side. I would present it like that. Okay. I can work more on the technical side of it. But, you know, creatively, I don't know that I'm the best guy. But I'll give it a go and we'll see. So, I don't know. There's a combination of Openness and internal awareness, it, it, it's a balance, I think. So yeah, I think you have to be aware of, of, of that. You can find out more about Mark at mark-plotty.com. That's Mark, M-A-R-K hyphen plotty, P-L-A-T-I dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyointercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby.